first Wednesday to all our listeners. On this episode two of The Lift Up, Tamara and I are discussing Insurrecto, a novel by Filipino writer Gina Apostol, which takes a title from revolutionaries who sparked the Philippine-American War. We picked this book since Philippine Independence Day falls on June 12th, commemorating the country's independence from Spain in 1898. Of course, the Philippines didn't really gain its independence and instead became an American colony for the next 50 years, a century if you consider that U.S. military bases were in operation until the 90s. Without further ado, let's dive right into our discussion about histories, realities, and other confusions in episode two. Hey, Vina. How are you? Hey, Tamara. How are you? How's London? It is good, thanks. We are having actually really good weather this weekend, even though it can't go out, but it's beautiful and it's sunny and it's warm. How is it in New York? Yeah, for the first for the first time, the weather has been nice. But you're right; it brings the crowds out, so it it doesn't feel too safe to be out there. I mean, especially without your mask. So if you are out there, wear your masks. <laughs> I know exactly. I mean, the last time I went outside, uh, I went for a little walk through one of the parks nearby my house and it was just so crowded and I had a mask and I had my gloves um but I it's just the amount of people I just said you know what I'm just gonna go back in pour myself a glass of wine sit by There the sunny go. window and read my book yeah <laughs> I mean I, you know that is what I have been doing this I think you and I have had offline conversations about how um, you know this this book is a little bit challenging so you have to really concentrate and find that space to concentrate to get the reading done but I think we've we've both gotten through it and gotten a lot out of it yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah Savina all right let's talk about it let's talk about this book let's talk yes, about Insurrecto oh, Insurrecto yeah so Tamara Insurrecto revolves around um, an incident that happened in Balangiga Samar during the Philippine-American War and the American part of that war implies the shared history there but do you actually remember ever learning about the Philippine-American War in school You know what? Very vaguely. And, you know, when I was thinking about it, I was just like, you know, we don't hear as much about it on a regular basis to remind us of what happened and why it was important to remember. I know that in 2018, they they sent the bells back to the Philippines, but they I did. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember reading anything about that. I mean, obviously, I'm in London, but I barely heard about it so yeah I no it was the same case here I mean I think maybe I saw um, one newspaper article about it but it was probably honestly a like a, a US version of um, mm -hmm. a Philippine um, newspaper yeah. so uh, it really didn't get much press at all um, so yeah uh, but I you know in terms of Uh, this war and encountering it in history books, I actually do remember being surprised uh, that the Philippines was mentioned in our 10th grade textbook. Mm. I'm a, <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm a very visual person. So what I actually remember is this photo of the revolutionary Emilio Aguinaldo, who became the first president of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. But 
from what I can remember in this textbook, there was no mention of the U.S. paying Spain $20 million to hand over the Philippines or the specific terms American Empire or Philippine-American War, where more than 250,000 Filipinos were killed. Wow, right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, I actually never learned about this war growing up in the Philippines either. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, our education system over there is still very much, uh, I feel, tied to the imperialist worldview. And if anything, uh, we called it an insurrection. So like insurrecto um, by just a whole bunch of ingrates, right? So instead of being proud of our revolutionary history, we were taught to be ashamed of fighting the Americans because they brought us English, a public education system, um, and of course, democracy. Um, And uh, like most groups excluded from mainstream history, I had to seek out my own history in relation to this country. And it's really Filipino Americans, so the ones who started ethnic uh, Asian Pacific American and Filipino studies programs in the 70s, who we have to thank for centering our history back onto ourselves. Um, And I think that's why you and I started this podcast. We recognize that there are just so many stories that we haven't heard. Yeah, I know. It's so true. And I think, you know, it's an interesting point, especially when we consider how stories are told and who Mm -hmm. tells those stories, right? You know, what's interesting is that I looked up a few reviews on the book, not like your (laughs) usual newspaper editorial reviews, but like, you know, reviews by other readers, you're kind of like us, you know, reading and Uh and, and wanting to find something new. And I had found an interesting one, which, uh, you know, you and I, again, talking offline, I was trying to find it. And, you know, usually when you find stuff and you don't bookmark it, you can't find it again. (laughs) (laughs) But what was, Of of course, but what was really interesting was this person's perception that the book was really heavy on U.S. pop culture, you know, talking about Elvis and Muhammad Ali, etc. And they were learning to look more about Philippine history. And it just made me think that the person didn't really give the book a chance, right? Mm. More so that they didn't understand how and why there would be this cultural intersection brought on by the occupation. So it led me to think and ask, right, does one need to know and understand the history of the U.S. occupation to understand and appreciate the book. Like Mm. when I read it, I purposefully did not look anything up while reading because I wanted to be able to answer that question for myself. And I found that I could appreciate the book and the various themes that run through the book without a deeper knowledge going into it. However, once I finished the book, I really wanted to learn more about the history. And I wanted to have a deeper understanding of those themes and connections. I mean, obviously, Vina, you know, what do you think? You know, I know you read it twice. But what did you think about that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting observation that the reader made about Elvis. Um, And for me, I do think he's a stand in for America, the way say, John Wayne or Dwight Eisenhower was for some of my older relatives. Uh, I actually do have an uncle uh, named Ike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And in the book, uh, so Kiara's mom, Virginie, sees Elvis at this concert in Vegas and wonders why he does all these stunts, these splits Mm -hmm. to seduce the audience, even though all they want is a a glance from um, the white robed singer, right? Yeah. And so there's this joke uh, that pretty much sums up how many Filipinos feel about America. Um, So so it it goes like this. For 300 years, we lived in a convent. 
mm-hmm. and then lived in Hollywood for the next 50 years. <laughs> so, um, and I'm so glad you, you got why Elvis was in the book and that you were also able to appreciate it without knowing the history. I mean, even for me, as someone who's admittedly obsessed about Philippine history, and as you mentioned, who's read this book twice, um, I still did find it challenging, but mm-hmm. in a good way. And I think Apostol actually anticipates this in the reader. There's this quote that I just find so reassuring. And technically, it's the character Magsalin who's talking to herself. But it could also be Apostol talking directly to us, the reader. So she says, a reader doesn't need to know everything. Why should we be spooked about not knowing all the details in a book about the Philippines, yet surge forward with resolve in stories about France? And um, I wonder whether we as readers do approach non-Western literature with more hesitations than Western literature. What do you think, Tamara? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question about, you know, approaching non-Western literature with more hesitation than Western. And I, I would say for me, it's, it's, it's hard to say personally, because we've been lucky that, you know, our repertoire exposure has been varied from a very early age. So mm-hmm. we're, we're open to a lot. <laughs> but, you know, that word exposure, the exposure is the key to that answer, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think, right? If you don't have the means or the ability, or quite frankly, even the encouragement to be exposed to various stories, then, I mean, I can hypothesize that one might be hesitant to approach stories they aren't used to or do not think would resonate. And, you know, like going off on a little tiny soapbox <laughs> tangent, that's why I think <laughs> libraries are key, but, you know, we'll go into that because I digress. <laughs> but, you know, also, I think you can link this back to the earlier points on history, right? You can mm-hmm. appreciate this work of art for what it is and its craft and making it accessible to all. But to really get to like that cream on the top, you know, mm-hmm. that's achieved through the historical and cultural significance. And that adds another layer, that additional depth that is so important to completing and rounding out the experience with this I book. totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting, you know, about how the book is challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, like we talked about, it took me a while to get through it. I found it really challenging. And to your point, not in a bad way, but in a way that requires you to pay attention. It's not an easy read. You know, some novels are, and those novels, of course, definitely have their place. You know, I've got a ton of those lined up for when I just want to escape <laughs> into another world and another story from everything's going on around me. And I just want to kind of like plow through it. But like this one is complex. It really requires you to think and to be introspective and to pay attention. And if you do, you, you, you know, you get to, you get to the gold at the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, I felt the same way. And, um, uh, it's even hard to summarize this book. So I suppose Insurrecto is about two main characters. So there's the Filipino-American translator, Magsalin, who's a Balikbayan, uh, or an emigrant who returns to her homeland, and American filmmaker Chiara Brazi, who is haunted by this brief childhood she had in the Philippines when her father was filming a movie about Vietnam in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that McSallin actually sees this film in a class about Vietnam War movies shot in blighted areas that are not Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually highlighted this sentence in the book. Um, 
There was something both engrossing and pathetic about reconstructing the trauma of whole countries through a movie's palimpsest. And what was most disturbing, of course, was that our identities are irremediably mediated. Mm. Personally, um, I love encountering new words in books. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that I had to look up the word palimpsest. Um, I found two definitions. So there's a manuscript or writing material on which original writing has been effaced to make room for newer writing out of which traces remain, or something that's reused or altered, but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form. Mm -hmm. And I really love how this one word gets at the crux of what I think the book is partially about. So mm -hmm. what Magsalin does in rewriting Kiara's script and what Kiara does in setting her script in Balangiga Samar are palimpsests. And I think there's also a larger point being made that history has to make room for newer writing as new knowledge, as counter narratives emerge. Um, but as you know, a history of violence like colonialism leaves permanent scars. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Tamara, what were the things that resonated with you or that surprised you in the book? There were so many things. Love the question. <laughs> I know, but can can I just go back to your point on words? Like I uh -huh. found so many words as well. Um, and I read this on my Kindle and highlighted so many words. So mm -hmm. I am looking forward to using some of these regularly. I do not want to forget them. I'm trying to find <laughs> ways to add, you know, confabulation and um ephemera to my everyday speech but i might have to hold you to that <laughs> keep me honest keep me honest um <laughs> let's see if we can put this in the next podcast oh, yeah, right? yes. <laughs> um but you know to touch on one point that you know i wanted to highlight i wanted to talk about style like i, mm -hmm. I you know there's you know, going back to the many things that kind of sat with me as I read through the book. And you and I chatted about this a bit offline over email, you know, for some of the characters I found, especially like um, Magdalene, I found their style of speech and thought very explanatory. So, you know, mm. lots of parentheses explaining certain things. And, and in a way, it almost seemed condescending. And I wondered, <laughs> you know, is there a point to that style of writing for that character? Like, how does it fit with the book? How does it fit with the character? What do you want me to feel about this person mm. in doing that? And additionally, you know, the way that the book wends in and out of various stories, including the one that's being written, you know, I know lots of authors do this, but the way that it was done with this particular book felt a little bit different. And I just wanted to know, like, what do you think in terms of how that adds to the narrative? Yeah, well, perhaps because of my ADHD. <laughs> I am a self-selecting segment of the population who actually likes whatever this style of writing, you know, postmodern writing. And although when I first read the book, I did feel that the style and kind of the convolutions uh, distracted a bit from the story. So this book isn't written in chapter order. Um, mm -hmm. And the second time around, that's how I decided to read it instead of by page order. Mm, and good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, that's really when I saw uh, kind of the genius in the book. So there are all these parallels between characters where the same description or even dialogue is used for more than one character or the inverse where one character just completely contradicts herself in another chapter. Mm -hmm. 
And I almost wish that the book were written in chapter order, but I think the jumbling is there to make a point about historical perspective or even about history repeating itself. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That is really mm. interesting. Um, yeah, I didn't think about that, but you know, hearing you say that, it totally makes sense to me. Um, you know, just to kind of like round out your earlier question and other points that, you know, resonated, I think, you know, the title of the book as well, mm -hmm. Insurrecto, you know, what it starts out with in the beginning with the meaning, you know, how we get mm -hmm. introduced to it, and then how that changes throughout the book and why, especially depending on who's talking about that word, right? right? You know, like, I think it was first referenced in section 22, why Samar, and I thought it was really interesting how interchangeable it was with many derogatory names, which, you know, mm -hmm. we won't say here, it's in right. the book, guys, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, the, this line did catch me, interchangeable names mm. in a confusing war. Mm. And then further on in the book, Magdalene has to explain to Chiara that the people of Balangia were not insurrectos, but revolutionaries. And yeah, I loved how that tied <laughs> with Cassiana's speech right, and like, right. you know, section 27 noon and then Cassandra's speeches later on in the book. And so, yeah. 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 No, I mean, from the beginning of the book, uh, Apostol really makes us pay attention to words, right? So um, she says at one point, um, words have at least two meanings and all of them mm -hmm. are correct. Um, and then also names. She says, choosing names is the first act of creating. Um, and there's a section in the book where Magsalin inspects the caption on these stereo cards. And she notices, for instance, that they're filed under Philippine insurrection, right? Not mm -hmm. Philippine American war. Um, and I guess this is in the Library of Congress uh, records. And that insurgents are in quotes, but not insurrection. And that soldiers are only used for white males. Yep. Um, and part of the forgotten history is that there were actually 6,000 African-American soldiers who fought in this war. And Apostol mentions in passing Private David Fagan. He was a black soldier who defected on the side of the Filipinos and was so notorious that there was a $600 bounty on his head. And his capture actually made headlines in the New York Times wow. um, in 1900, I think it was. And it makes sense to me that Fagan and um, 20 other soldiers defected and fought with Filipinos. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld Jim Crow segregationist laws in the South, happened just two years before they were sent to the Philippines. Wow. Yeah, so they totally understood the hypocrisy of this war. Um, and actually, more than a thousand black soldiers chose to remain permanently in the Philippines because they felt that they would have better economic opportunities and would face less racial prejudice there. Yeah, I, you know, I had no <laughs> idea about that, which is really interesting. It goes back to your point about, you know, so many pieces of this are are forgotten and it, right. we're not taught we don't know about that but you know when you when you mentioned that part about Fagan and why you know a lot of the 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 black soldiers decided to stay in the Philippines permanently mm -hmm. it reminded me of you know Muhammad Ali's refusal to go to Vietnam mm -hmm. and the reasons mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. gave you know I you know I'm not going to read out his quote I think a lot of people know that quote but if you don't you know please google it and we'll also put it as 
a, a resource link on our website. Yes. Um, but I thought that was very interesting and making and that Muhammad connection. Ali's in the book too. Exactly. So. <laughs> you know, that connection of Ali to the novel and, you know, makes yeah. it really interesting. And, you know, I even thought, well, perhaps there might be a further interesting connection if you start thinking about why, you know, Ludo decided to go to the Philippines to make this movie about Vietnam. Um, but, you know, yeah, there, there's so many other interesting themes in addition to that. Like, you know, the theme about um, expatriation and repatriation, mm. that experience that uh, Maxeline seems to struggle with. And to a certain extent, Chiara, you know, growing mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. for the most part within the Philippines and then kind of being moved around by Virginia. But, you know, it spoke to me quite a bit as an expat myself. Yeah, no, that that part about how McSallen feels guilty for leaving, but then also how she knows her family won't ever blame her for it really resonated with me. Um, I read somewhere that 10,000 Filipinos leave the country each day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's it's so common that we actually have an acronym for them, OFWs or Mm -hmm. Overseas Foreign Workers. And I've been wanting to, but really haven't been back to the Philippines in over 20 years. And like Magsalin, you know, I know I can't ever return to the place that I remember, Mm -hmm. right? And I know I'll probably feel more like a tourist uh, for as much as I do try to retain my culture and relearn my ancestral language Ilocano and the national language Tagalog. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, exactly. Like, Sometimes I feel it's harder when you return than when you leave. Mm, Like mm -hmm. you've moved on and changed and everyone else has moved on and changed. And I remember, you know, how out of place I felt in the 10 months I came back to the U.S. from Japan before I moved to the U.K. I wasn't expecting that to be so hard. I wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting to feel so out of place, that reverse culture shock. Like I hadn't been born in New York City and lived my whole life there. But, you know, like I imagine like to your point, so many people who, who move countries and, you know, build their lives elsewhere must feel that way at some point that, you know, feeling that connection to where they're from, but also feeling a little bit displaced when they go back. And so, you know, when, when reading and feeling what Magdalene was feeling, it connected me with her character a bit. Mm. But, um, you know, just kind of going through, there were so many other themes I noticed as well. Um, You know, I won't spend too much time on them, but just to kind of like run through for everybody Mm -hmm. else, you know, that the juxtaposition of Manila and America, where they're described as one is in the other and the other's in Mm -hmm. one, you know, Um, that relationship between Chiara and Magdalene and what they symbolize, uh, this running theme of grief and how one manages grief. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sends both of them all the way back to Samar just for them to have this revelation about how they grieve for their own individual losses. But, you know, it's also funny the way in which they then approach that in the scripts to Uh the film, right? And how they- And actually this book is- kind of funny yeah for a you know book about war exactly Uh, yeah Yeah, no definitely and like they you know it's a book about war but then they use that that theme of grief in the script to kind of sort of perceive how like you know virginie and and kaz's character would grieve for ludo and you know i also you know thought like that might even tie into cassandra and cassiana Mm -hmm. how they Mm -hmm. honor Mm -hmm. balangiga and how they grieve for the people that get balangiga but you know 
last but not least, that theme of occupation and appropriation. There was this part in section 34 that I really enjoyed reading where Cassandra corrects the man arresting her after the, um, the, the insurrection, right? Um, and says, if she is part of their plot, she's no insurrecta. She's a revolutionary. Oh, yeah. yeah? I did love that. And then, <laughs> like, and then they go further to talk about, like, her, her prepared testimony to the U.S. Senate. And this really hit me, right? Her, she goes, we yeah. told them we would free them from Spain. Mm-hmm. We lied. We took the islands for ourselves. We commit the crimes we abhor. We outdid the savagery for which we claim a just war. And then, you know, mm-hmm. if you skip ahead a bit, oh, what a tangled web we weave, this damned plate of a back rope. We have braided ourselves, this war, this benevolent assimilation, this manila hemp in hell. Mm-hmm. When we first practice to deceive, we deceive ourselves first. Can't you see? Have you not read Mark Twain? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, section 35, she gives her oral testimony to the U.S. Senate and she tells them to remember Cassiana Nacionalis' <laughs> name and how it was stricken and thought insane because she was a woman who dared to say and show the damage and hypocrisy of what the U.S. inflicted on the Philippines. But also so infuriating. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I was so I was like, I, I went back and was just like, wait a minute. Can I find this somewhere? <laughs> I want to know. I know. <laughs> but, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. Seriously. But, um, you know, that view of how the people of Samar were retaliated against for standing up for themselves. And then Cassandra was able to go home to her normal life because she had these, mm-hmm. you know, these these wealthy connections in New York. And it, it made me wonder if, you know, earlier on in the book, if Cassiana, who's like the mother of this revolution, right, what she said to her in section 29 had prompted her to make this stand, you know, so much later on, there was, I mean, there's just so much depth in these sections and the connections that you can make as you think about it, and you connect the stories through the book, and just so many more themes to explore. But you know, don't want to give too much away to you know everyone else who hasn't read it yet so i'm gonna stop yeah, there <laughs> no and we can also totally go on for hours um and uh you know actually you're mentioning that uh congressional hearing reminded me that if you or our listeners haven't read mark twain's essay to the person sitting in darkness mm-hmm. it's really worth doing at some point um twain was a vocal anti-imperialist and it is really a shame that most of us aren't exposed to that side of his writing Mm. um and so yeah i think in the blog post we can put um a reference to that essay uh, as well in there yeah um and another thing that struck me about the book is that apostol chooses not to italicize the tagalog Mm -hmm. or Borai words um and she's talked about how grateful she is to have editors who understand why that's important um it kind of i I don't know if you remember this but it kind of reminds me about how juno diaz chose not to translate the spanish in his novel the brief wondrous life of oscar wow because he thought that the whole point was so that readers could reach out if they didn't understand something um yeah and actually, yeah, no, I'm all for having readers work a little harder. I mean, we live in this age of instant gratification, <laughs> <Yep>. you know. <laughs> and um, I think going back to something that you said earlier, um, one of the things that I really loved about Insurrecto is that there are so many rabbit holes Indeed. that you could fall into. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, I kept noticing this website that kept popping up, praxino.org. Mm-hmm. And 
Of course, I'm a dork, so I have to see if it was real. (laughs) So actually, for those of you who've listened this far into the podcast, this is your reward for your hard work. If you haven't done this yet, go to Praxino.org. And I swear you will love this book and Gina Apostol even more. (laughs) Fantastic. No, that is great. No, I loved, I really loved how the, you know, Tagalog and Warai words were interspersed within the text, Mm -hmm. you know, and the feel that gave me as a reader. um, And, you know, just kind of just brought me into the story more. And I agree Mm. with you, you know, this is a novel for which you've got to work and earn that prize, Mm. that aha moment where it all comes together for you. I'm so I'm so glad you feel this way about this book. Um, And I really do think that we picked the right book to read this month. And not just because of Philippine Independence Day, of course, um, but because Apostol doesn't shy away from depicting what it's like living in the Philippines right now. Uh, under what's basically a lawless de facto dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this violent scene in Insurrecto um, where policemen on motorcycles chase down and shoot a father and child on a motorbike. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, this scene was probably inspired by the real life story of uh, four-year-old Althea Barbon, who at the time this book was written, she was the youngest fatality of an extrajudicial killing. Oh my gosh. And yeah. Um, and basically, Althea's father was shot by the police just for being suspected of drug dealing. Wow. Um, Yeah. And she was sitting in front of him on this motorbike and the bullet that shot her father in the back and killed him got lodged in her spine. Uh, Yeah. And she ended up dying a couple of days later in the hospital. Um, And I just can't even imagine the physical pain and the psychological trauma that this poor kid went through before she died. Seriously. Yeah. 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 And the death count under Duterte, uh, according to reports, is now over 30,000. And at least 100 of them are young people like Althea. Um, And Duterte has actually called these kids collateral damage in his war on drugs. Um, Yeah, uh, choice of words there. Um, And it's only gotten worse with COVID-19. Amnesty International and other human rights groups have condemned the thousands of arrests that have taken place for so-called lockdown and curfew violations. And um, Duterte has the shoot-to-kill policy. So Mm -hmm. if anyone questions or criticizes the government's response to this pandemic you know they can just shoot you whatever um so i mean i i just really really admire gina apostol for so many reasons Mm -hmm. um of course including trying to make americans care about the shared um but forgotten history of ours between our two countries um but as well as the human rights crisis that's that's happening today yeah no i i mean i agree with you and to a certain extent you know our podcast has an audience that's you know, global in nature. So, mm-hmm. you know, for many people who are sitting out there who aren't aware of the this connection, the shared history, but also, you know, what's happening, it it's also a way in which to hopefully enlighten that population. You know, a lot of this sitting here in London, I don't hear about unless, you know, I talk mm-hmm. to my friends in different locations. So, I mean, for me, who feels slightly a little bit more international uh, to a certain mm-hmm. extent, you know, I can only imagine for someone who does not have that exposure, how little they will be exposed to to, to what's going on. So, yeah, um, it's interesting, you know, mentioning this part 
as we come to the the end of the podcast, you know, talking <laughs> about this book, but I think, you know, yeah. kind of sort of coming in this direction, it's quite important. I I just want to kind of like add a little anecdote around that in terms of how, you know, politics and, and art are, you know, they're intertwined to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? So for anyone here who's listening, who's kind of gotten a little bit of view of what's going on in the UK around COVID, there, there's obviously been a lot of uh, issues with our lawmakers making laws, but then also breaking the laws and then being excused mm-hmm. for breaking those laws. So mm-hmm. a little bit of say mm-hmm. what I do, say, do what I right. say, but not what I do. Right. And um, one of the uh, art, the authors that I follow, but also someone who in the UK has done a great deal for, um, f- for, for writing in the UK is Damien Barr and I follow his literary salon and, you know, Jojo Moyes had written a post just saying, you know, in relation to what's been happening, why it hurts the nation so much is because every single one of us had to miss out on so much, you know, due Mm -hmm. to the lockdown that it just didn't seem fair that, you know, you could tell us to stay home, but you don't. Um, And what I loved is his response. He goes, as ever, we turn to our favorite writers to help us understand the world and give voice to our Mm. feelings. Right. Mm. And one of the hashtags he puts is, you know, personal is political. Um, And, you know, yeah, yeah, sometimes, you know, we, we want to try as hard as we can to separate a little bit between the political and, and the art, but that's where the voice of artists and authors and poets and painters and whatever your musicians, whatever your art form is, helps give voice to those voices that may not necessarily be able to make it to the mainstream. So, yeah, I think, mm. you know, <laughs> just to kind of move yeah. us forward from through that point. Yeah, no. And, and that is an interesting point, because I've always thought about this, you know, like the artists who say, oh, you know, like art should only be made for art's sake or, um, you know, you should depoliticize art or whatever it is. Um, And I actually think that's a very privileged stance um, Mm. to have. Uh, And I think the um, artists and the writers who um, actually can't help but inject politics because politics is personal, the personal is politics, um, you know, I, I think oftentimes um, are coming from from a completely different space where where you can't you can't kind of divorce yourself from those two realities um, because you know it, it is it is part of whatever um, creative work you make is is yourself. Um, so I, I always did find that debate um, really interesting. And and obviously, if you can't tell, I kind of side on the yeah, no, you, you can't separate um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> politics from art. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, no, and and I think that that might be a, a good place for <laughs> us to uh, to wrap up this this episode two. Yeah. And, um, really everyone who stuck with us um through the end of this thank you so much mm-hmm. for listening and we do hope that you join us on the first wednesday in july oh my gosh yep. how, how, is it, <laughs> how is it gonna be july moving so fast uh, for another 
Yes, for our next episode of the Indeed. Lift Off. And as always, Mina, always so much fun talking to you. Always. So um, but, you know, yeah. for our listeners out there, if you want to get a head start on July, the next book we're going to be reading is called There There by Tommy Orange. So, you know, stay safe, pick up the book, and we will see you next month. Yeah.